0: The FDIC has issued new guidance that outlines risk mitigation practices banks should follow when working with payments processors. High-risk processors, like those that handle transactions for telemarketers, online businesses, and other merchants, require banks to conduct comprehensive due diligence and monitoring. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Michael Bernardo, Chief of the FDIC's Cyber Fraud and Financial Crime Section within the Division of Risk Management Supervision, who provides an overview of the FDIC's updated guidance for payments processors and what it means for financial institutions. Mike, can you tell us a little bit about why the FDIC has identified third-party payments processors as entities that pose increasing security and fraud risks? Why are we seeing updated guidance now?
1: Sure, Tracy. Um, Well, during the past several years, the FDIC has observed an increase in the number of deposit relationships, between financial institutions and third-party payment processors and the corresponding increase in the risk associated with these relationships. The deposit relationships with payment processors can expose financial institutions to risks not present in typical commercial customer relationships. These include things like greater strategic, credit, compliance, transaction, legal, and most importantly, reputational risk. Back in 2008, the FDIC issued first guidance on payment processor relationships, which outlined risk mitigation principles for this type of higher risk activity. Uh, And since that time, we have seen an increase in this activity, as I stated, and we've learned more about this risk. So we felt it was important to update that guidance and reissue it, as we did at the end of January.
0: Now, the FDIC's new guidance notes specific security and fraud risks, such as the increased probability that processors dealing with telemarketing and online merchants pose higher risks since they are often linked to consumer fraud and illegal activities. Can you tell us, Mike, or walk through some of the key security risks that have been identified by the FDIC?
1: Although many clients of payment processors are reputable merchants, we have seen an increasing number of... Uh, of relationships where their clients are considered high-risk. These kind of merchants use payment processors to charge consumers for questionable or fraudulent goods and services. Um, they might engage in high-pressure sales tactics, deceptive sales tactics, aggressive telemarketing, or enticing or misleading pop-up ads on websites. For example, consumers should be cautious when a website offers a free information and ask consumers to provide payment information to cover a small shipping and handling fee. In some instances, and without really proper disclosures, consumers agree to pay these fees, often find that their bank account's debited for more than the fee, and that they find themselves enrolled in costly plans without their knowledge or understanding. Um, Other kinds of merchants that we've seen use these payment processors to initiate payments for the sale of products and services for things like... um, online sale of tobacco products or internet gambling, which both are illegal in this country.
0: Now, payments processors must have effective steps in place, Michael, for verifying merchant identities and reviewing those merchants' businesses' practices. How are most institutions currently evaluating those processing practices as parts of their vendor management programs?
1: Well, let me just uh, clarify something. This doesn't really fall under a vendor management program because the types of third-party payment processors this guidance specifically addresses are not considered vendors of the financial institution. They're customers of the financial institution. They are an entity that establishes a deposit relationship with the bank and then use that account to deposit transactions on behalf of the client merchants, which are originating the transactions from sales, uh, as I described, of goods and services. So... Uh, the comment that payment processors must have effective steps in place for verifying merchant identities, I would agree that's what we would like to see, but what we've seen in these relationships is that they don't. The payment processors themselves are not really verifying the merchant clients. Um, in fact, they're advertising in some cases that they like to take on high-risk clients. So it's really then up to the bank to do the due diligence to understand who these merchant clients are, whose payments, whose transactions are flowing through that financial institution.
0: Now, the FDIC says that it expects institutions to oversee all transactions and activities that it processes, as well as to manage and mitigate operational risks, compliance with the Bank Secrecy Act, fraud risks, and consumer protection risks. How will the FDIC monitor these activities, and what penalties might banks face for inadequate due diligence?
1: Well, the FDIC would monitor how banks are doing this at our normal examination process. When we examine a financial institution, we we look at how they manage all kinds of risks. This is just one more risk added to that list. We would look to see that, um, you know, our examiners would look to see that the bank is got a program in place if they have these kinds of payment processor clients, that they are effectively managing that risk. And if we find that they're not, um, we have, you know, the full array of um, appropriate supervisory responses that we could take against a financial institution who's not appropriately managing this risk. Those include things like uh, formal and informal enforcement actions, um, cease and desist orders, as well as civil money penalties. And then in some cases, we've seen that because the bank may be viewed as um, a facilitator of these payments, which may be harming consumers, we could invoke Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act for unfair and deceptive practices and um, initiate civil money penalties against the bank for that as well.
0: Then, Mike, what is the timeline for updated risk management practices? What should banks be expected to implement and by when?
1: Well, this is a little different than, say, the authentication guidance that recently came out where we're expecting all financial institutions to comply with certain uh, thresholds or benchmarks by a certain date. This is more um, something that we would expect financial institutions to already have in place. As I mentioned, we first issued guidance back in 2008 on this issue. And um, financial institutions that have third party payment processors as clients should already have processes, procedures, policies in place to monitor the risks associated with those relationships.
0: Now, going back to some of the things that are noted in the actual guidance, the guidance mentions suspicious processors that often target community banks, since smaller institutions often lack the infrastructure to manage or control a third party payment processor relationship. Mike, what practices or steps could smaller banks take to ensure they aren't exploited? Can you elaborate here?
1: Well, again, the number one step they can take is doing appropriate due diligence. If they're going to have a, a you know deposit relationship with a customer, they need to understand who that customer is and what kind of transactions they're going to be um, processing or putting through that account. Um, as, as you mentioned, we've seen that some of these payment processors, the, the more illicit or deceptive ones have actually been tricking institutions into opening these accounts. In other words, they'll say that it's going to be one type of account, and then after a few months, change the type of activity that they're using the account for. They'll start depositing these checks, uh, which are either usually remotely created checks or demand drafts or ACH payments into their account that ultimately go back and you know hit consumers' accounts. We've also seen that these um, types of companies are targeting problem institutions that they're going out on various websites and figuring out which financial institutions are in troubled condition, um, you know, either by looking to see which financial institutions are under a uh, consent order or some sort of enforcement action with their regulator or just looking at, you know, how they're performing at their profit and loss and then approaching those institutions because they think they may be desperate for money or fee income or even capital. We've seen in some cases where but third-party payment processors have, you know, promised uh, a great abundance of fees and fee income for the institution with little risk, stating that they'll manage all the risk, that they'll give, for example, you know, guarantee repayment if an item is returned. Um, and then that's not always the case, as we've seen.
0: How could financial institutions do more to share information? So if they communicated with one another about some of these suspicious processors, how might that help to raise red flags?
1: Well, I think that's a great idea, and I think that would help immensely um, because what we do see is that as soon as one one bank closes down a relationship, that third-party payment processor still needs access to the banking system, so it immediately starts looking for another financial institution to bank with. Or in some cases, what we've seen is that they already have two or three different accounts established so that they can quickly move between institutions if they need to, for example, if they're shut down by one Um, We also see that they just use multiple institutions sometimes to help try and hide their activity. They'll use one bank for a couple of months and then switch it to a different bank, for example, or they'll move different merchant um, activity to different financial institutions to help keep down some of the red flags like the uh, rates of returns and things like that. Although I would add that there are some challenges to financial institutions sharing information about this because what we've seen, our experience has been that these entities will quickly change their name They'll quickly um, form new corporations and incorporate uh, new LLCs and, and kind of really morph themselves fast to try to stay under the radar.
0: Now, talking about the way fraudulent activity is typically identified, banks usually hear about it from consumers, and the FDIC notes that banks should be mindful of the prevalence of consumer complaints and or the amount of returns or chargebacks. Mike, do you see most banks adequately tracking consumer complaints right now?
1: Uh, We do. Um, And in situations where we, you know, have institutions that have third-party payment process relationships, those that are well-managed, that's one of the things the bank is doing, monitoring for consumer complaints. And that could be, you know, consumer complaints that come directly into that institution by phone or email or website, or it could be looking for other types of complaints, like on some of the different complaint boards that are out there and blogs on the Internet. It's uh, quite easy I think for a financial institution to just go and do a Google search for their name and then the word complaints, and they might be surprised what pops up. They might find that some consumers who have felt like they've been wronged um, by a particular merchant have sort of followed the full trail of the money that it went from, you know, merchant A to payment processor B to bank C, and they sort of show this and they'll describe this whole transaction on, on a complaint that they post. They really do it in an effort to try to help others, you know, from becoming victims of something like this. But there's a lot of stuff out there on the Internet that a financial institution could look at to understand how consumers are perceiving the transactions that are flowing through that bank and in some cases even that bank. That's why I said earlier that it could be a very big reputational risk problem. If a bank is perceived by consumers as helping facilitate nuisance, fraudulent, or illegal payments, that could be um, you know a challenge for them to try to recuperate from. But the other thing that I think institutions really need to be on the lookout for is that high rate of returns. Because, you know, this is the type of activity where there's a lot of buyer's remorse or, or just refusal where the, the consumer feels like, oh, I didn't really, you know, mean to buy this product. They they pressured me into it. I want to return this and cancel this subscription. Or they say, they say this isn't at all what the person described to me. You know, they were describing something of a certain quality and what I got in the mail was really junk. And so I'm returning you know, the the merchandise and going to have the payment stopped. So there's a lot of return activity, especially unauthorized returns that happen. And banks should be on the lookout for high volumes of that. In some cases that we've been dealing with, we've seen return rates over 50%. That's, that means, you know, half the people who are, are buying something are not happy with it.
0: And before we close, Mike, I did want to ask a little bit about steps that institutions should take to help mitigate some of these risks. To mitigate processing risks, banks are expected to hire staff members that have background as well as experience with third-party processing management. And the FDIC notes that ongoing monitoring should be overseen by the bank's boards of directors as well as senior management. Now, given all of the conformance and regulatory initiatives to which financial institutions are now expected to adhere – what recommendations can you offer? How can banks work to fiscally budget it all in?
1: Well, I don't think that this would require a financial institution to hire specific people to deal with this issue. I think it, it's just something that could be dealt with in the normal course of risk management for a financial institution. And the, the financial institution letter that we just issued really enumerates all the different due diligence and underwriting standards that we expect an institution to, to undertake. And those include things like um, you know, just identifying that there are third party payment processor relationships to start, incorporating appropriate policies and procedures in place regarding those types of accounts. In other words, maybe they have a written policy that it says what kinds of thresholds they're willing, what kind of risk of threshold they're really willing to accept. And of course that's why we think that senior management and the board really should should sign off on that is because they're they're stating what you know level of risk they're willing to accept. So it could um as the Phil says, include things like, um, you know, identifying major lines of businesses and volumes for the processor's customers, reviewing the processor's policies, procedures, and, um, to determine if they're adequate, reviewing corporate documentation of the processor just to make sure everything is in line there, um, reviewing their processor's promotional materials, including their website to determine its target clientele. Because with some of these per- payment processors, we've seen if you go to their website, it'll say in very clear letters right across the top, We accept high-risk transactions or things like, have you been turned down by Visa and MasterCard? Come to us. So they very clearly market themselves to high-risk clients uh, who want to, again, sort of fly under the radar. So if a bank looked at that, I mean, that takes five seconds to do. Just look at the payment processor's website. It could determine right then, well, hey, this processor is, you know, targeting high-risk activity. Do we really want that flowing through our bank? Maybe even actually... The bank should consider going out and visiting the business operations center to make sure that it's legitimate and things are in order. Um, And then, as I said, review for consumer complaints that might already be out there about an about a third party payment processor. They could, you know, use Google as the first place to start to just look to see if there are complaints. Check with the Better Business Bureaus, things like that, and then determine whether there's any conflict of interest between any insider of the institution and the payment processor. Uh, You know, just to make sure that everything is on the up and up there. That there's not a certain member. You know, employee of the institution that's that's trying to bring this relationship to the bank, and if there is, make sure that it's all done with an arm's length transaction. And then the ongoing monitoring that we would expect is also explained in the uh, guidance letter, which you know is things like monitoring for complaints, monitoring for especially high levels of returns, monitoring for any other kinds of suspicious activity, filing a suspicious activity report with FinCEN when they think that there's something suspicious.
0: Michael, I want to thank you again for your time today. Thank you. Again, we've just heard from Michael Bernardo of the FDIC. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.